This is Wallace A. Bell of the Puritan Evangelical Church of America in San Diego, California. I'm very glad to see that you have obtained a copy of the presentation of the gospel which I drew up some years ago in order to help someone like you to be able to give the gospel to another. The piece of paper which is included with this tape may be called the chart. It is a chart which explains the gospel from the beginning of scripture all the way through scripture and contains all of the basic elements in the giving of the gospel as the gospel should be given in all of its fullness for the gospel begins with God this is illustrated on the chart before you by the number one and you'll notice that there is a square drawn there with the word God in it and then the Trinity is indicated by the small letters to the right side of that square F for Father, S for Son and HS for Holy Spirit for God is three persons now this is one of the great mysteries of the Bible the one and three and three and one one God three persons however it is very plain in scripture that this is how the God of the Bible is Father Son and Holy Spirit for each of these is mentioned over and over again in scripture and even though we cannot fully understand the person of the Godhead. Nonetheless, if we are to accept the God of the Bible, then we are required to believe that this is the God, the only true God. The Bible tells us that this God created. He created all things by his power. He created the heavens and this earth upon which you and I live. What a wonderful creation it is. This creation bears testimony to the fact that there is a creator of intelligence and power, just as a watch or a clock bears testimony to the fact that there was behind it a watchmaker or watchmakers a clockmaker or clockmakers. Though we may never have seen the actual maker, we would be very foolish to say that behind this watch or this clock there was not a mind. Behind it there was not intelligence and power. It's very obvious. And so as we look at the creation, we see the same type of thing. It's order, it's design, it's beauty. It reflects a creator of intelligence and power. For out of nothing, nothing may be. And there certainly is something. And this something indicates that there's someone behind it. So the Bible teaches us that this God creates. 
And then he created something even more wonderful than the material creation, as wonderful as that may be. And this is indicated on the chart before you by the number two, where we see this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creating man and woman, our first parents. He creates man by his power, and then he creates woman out of man. Now these are very wonderful creatures because he shares with them an intimate relationship. It tells us that he breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. This means that he gave man and woman the ability to know him, to love him, and to serve him thus placing them far above any other creature in the universe, far above the animal world. These creatures, man and woman, would be different. God gives them the authority over the rest of the creation, and he tells them to increase and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, so we have this very beautiful picture at the beginning of the Bible, a picture which I indicate by the words which follow after number two on the chart, fellowship, peace, enjoyment. In other words, what may be called abundant life. Here is the creator. Here is the beautiful creation. Here are these wonderful creatures over this creation over the animal world, the vegetable world, the mineral world, man and woman, walking with their creator, talking with their creator, having this beautiful fellowship with their creator, what may be called paradise. The creator, however, inserts into the midst of this a commandment. And I indicate this under number three. This commandment is actually very elementary. He has placed them in a beautiful environment, in a beautiful garden. In the garden are trees. And there's one particular tree which he calls the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he warns these, our first parents, these wonderful creatures, man and woman, not to eat of that particular tree. And he warns them that if they do eat of it, in the day that they eat of it, they will surely die. Now this death is not a reference to physical death. That will come later. It's a reference to spiritual death. It's a reference to separation from their creator as far as true fellowship is concerned. As far as they're having the ability to know him and to love him and to serve him, a right is concerned. This commandment might be called a test. It would be a test of their love for him. It would be a test of their desire to obey him, of their desire to please him. At this point, the Bible introduces us to another wonderful and mysterious person who is called in Scripture Satan. This I indicate under number four on the chart, 
with a little s. Satan, or the devil, as he is called, comes along to Eve, and he suggests to Eve that it's all right to eat of this tree. And he puts doubts into her mind concerning the word of her creator. He suggests that perhaps he didn't really mean what he said. And he puts before her the idea that if she and Adam do eat of this tree, they will become as gods themselves. And they will have an ability that they do not now have. Eve listens to this story. She looks at the tree and then she uh, goes and tells her husband, Adam, and uh, he listens to her. And the final story is that they take of the tree after they have looked and lusted, they take. And the question arises, did the Creator keep his promise? He had given a commandment with a threat attached to it. Did he keep his promise? Would they die because they had eaten of the tree, because they had disobeyed the commandment of their Creator and benefactor? of the one who had given them all things to enjoy and who had made them, as it were, kings of the earth with the ability to rule in it, to procreate and bring forth a posterity to follow in their steps. The answer to this question is found on the chart under number five. You'll notice that I've drawn there a line that points to the right column towards number six. And on that line I've written the word sin. This disobedience of Adam and Eve is called sin. And that is a very excellent definition of sin. Sin is disobedience to God's law, to the law of your creator. Our fathers, the Puritans, in answer to the question, what is sin, answered very beautifully by saying, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. They sinned. They disobeyed the commandment. And God kept his promise. Fellowship, as I've written on the chart, was lost. They did die. They died spiritually as far as a proper relationship with their creator God was concerned. Theologians call this the fall. And indeed it was the fall. Not just a fall, a slight fall, but the fall. A total fall from their original state. No longer would they have the ability to know their creator aright. No longer would they love him aright, and no longer would they serve him aright. They would not have the ability to serve him aright. And so everything is changed. Paradise is lost. What an awful picture. 
a picture that started with such beauty has now suddenly become horrible, has now suddenly been completely altered through the fall of our first parents into sin. This brought them into a state of condemnation. This is under number six on the chart in the right column. The state of condemnation utterly different from the state in which they started. You'll notice that the A and E in number two are not shaded as the A and E under number six because the condition of man has been utterly changed. He is now a sinner. He has been driven from the presence of his creator. God drove Adam and Eve out of his presence and placed guardians at the garden lest they would enter again. They are under his wrath. They are in a state of condemnation. And they produce children just like themselves, of like character. This is called by theologians the doctrine of original sin. The verses which are given on the chart show this to be the case. So we now have sinners producing sinners, which is not only scriptural but also logical. For how can a clean thing come out of an unclean? So Adam and Eve bring forth children just like themselves, children in a state of spiritual death, children who will not have the ability to know God, to love God, to serve God. And this explains why, from the moment of our birth, we are on the run from God. This explains why a man or woman in his or her natural state has really no desire for the things of God. This is why the word of God is quickly cast aside. This is why the God of the word is by and large ignored so that men and women spend their time and their energy upon themselves, their treasure, their talents upon themselves, their own pleasures, profits and pursuits, and not upon their creator God. They do not spend their time seeking to use these gifts to glorify him. This accounts for this. This fall is the reason for all of the suffering throughout all of history since that fall took place. It's the reason for man's running from God just as Adam and Eve ran and hid themselves or tried to hide themselves right after they had initially sinned. The psalmist put it very well. He said, In sin did my mother conceive me. He said that he was shapen in iniquity. And so we must realize the truth that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are in a state of spiritual death and we cannot help ourselves. And should 
we die in that condition. This leads to what is called under number seven on the chart, hell. Hell is the continuation of that separation. The continuation of our spiritual condition. Not knowing God, not loving God, not serving God. After we cross that line, which I call physical death on the chart. After we cross over that line which separates this present life from eternity. From the continuation of it beyond this present life. If we die in a state of condemnation, we remain in a state of condemnation. Someone may say, so what? I've enjoyed this present life. I'm enjoying this present life. <laughs> if it simply means I'm in a different location, let it be. However, the Bible goes on to show that the mercies that you have enjoyed in this present life are withdrawn. By mercies I mean God's goodness to you, the abilities he has given you, the things you enjoy in this present life. There will be no more enjoyment in hell. It is God's continuing to pour out his wrath, unmitigated wrath, unalleviated wrath, unalleviated by any mercy in eternity. That is hell. Jesus illustrates it by telling the story of a rich man who died and it tells us that in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments crying out for mercy and there was none so remember if you go to hell you will never have another enjoyment ever and then on top of that there will be the spiritual miseries of an eternity in hell like an eternal nightmare perhaps you've had a nightmare you've been so glad when you have awakened from it so relieved that it's not happening to you there will be no relief from the eternal nightmare of hell and then when resurrection day comes those spiritual miseries will be accompanied by physical miseries for God will resurrect your body, reconstruct it again, and reclothe your soul or spirit again with this new body which will be constructed to be able to endure the most horrendous, most horrific, most terrible physical pains forever. The Bible calls it being salted with fire it is a fire that will go on and yet it never consumes that which is burning it keeps on burning 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 it is God's wrath let loose as he uses what he has created to inflict pain upon those who have lived their lives in rebellion against him against his mercies against his law and against his gospel and so we have this dreadful ending to the life that is lived in a state of condemnation. The continuation of that condemnation in hell forever. Separation from God. The mercies of God taken away. 
spiritual miseries like an eternal nightmare and physical miseries to follow as one's body is continually burned in Gehenna, the lake of fire. Some people do not like this doctrine of hell, and yet in the New Testament it is spoken more about than heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And this is love, for it is love to warn others to flee from the wrath to come. It is love to warn a person not to fall into a hole, not to fall into a ditch, not to run over a precipice. But that is how the sinner really is in his natural state. He's as a blind person going down a hill at the bottom of which is a precipice at the bottom of which is a sea of fire a bottomless pit what a terrible description yet it's the biblical description and so we have this history in the Bible a history that begins so brightly so beautifully and then suddenly becomes dark and ugly and horrible. Paradise lost. Now if that was all that the Bible had to say, it indeed would be bad news, with emphasis on the bad. But the Bible also contains good news. Indeed, that's what the word gospel actually means. It means good news. It's from the Greek word good message good news and what is this good news the good news I have indicated under number 8 on the chart in the left column where we see God the Father Son and Holy Spirit having ordained many to eternal life and I have indicated the many by drawing three little shaded squares to the right of the diagram which pictures God this is under number eight these three little shaded squares represent the many that will be brought from a state of condemnation into what may be called a state of salvation God was not caught unawares by the fall God has not been caught unawares by Adam and Eve's sin. God decreed to permit that for his own glory. Now we don't know the reason why, but the answer is for his own glory. And he already had planned to save many out of that terrible condition, to save many from a state of condemnation to save many from hell he had already planned this and had ordained many to eternal life to be brought into a proper relationship with himself again this is the beginning of the gospel the gospel begins with God not with man it begins with God it begins in what is called the covenant, the everlasting covenant, is what it's called in the book of Hebrews. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had already drawn up a plan whereby they would save many from this state of condemnation, from this state of alienation, from this state of spiritual death, and from an eternal hell. To the praise of his glorious grace. The Father gave many to the Son before time began, before the foundation of the world. And the Son undertook to become their Savior. And this leads us to point number nine on the chart. The Father, when the fullness of time was come, at the appointed time in the history which they had planned, the Father sent the Son, whose name in history was Jesus, to be the Redeemer of these that had been ordained to eternal life. The Lord Jesus comes to be a substitute for his sheep. Now what does God require of us if we are to be his friends? He requires of us total obedience to his law. This is what he required of Adam and Eve. And they didn't give it. And none of us can give it. But Jesus gave it for his sheep. He lives sinlessly, as I've indicated on the chart, under the small number one. He had no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. He is a unique person in history. The Son of God, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, the sinless person who never thought a sinful thought, who never said a sinful word, who never did a sinful deed. And he presents that life to God the Father in behalf of his sheep, in behalf of those that have been ordained to eternal life. And then after he has done this, even though he himself was the the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish, he offers that life as an atonement to satisfy God's justice against sin. He takes the punishment that these that have been ordained to eternal life deserve. He takes that in their place. God pours out the wrath that they deserve in eternity upon him. This is the love of Christ. This is why he suffered so. This is why he cried in Gethsemane. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This is why his sweat appeared as great drops of blood dripping from his brow. This is why he cried on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You will notice that he gave over his soul to death. In other words, he suffered spiritually as well as physically. He was enduring the hell that his sheep deserve throughout all of eternity in soul and body in himself the love of Christ this is what Paul spoke about when he said the love of Christ constraineth me the love of Christ which demonstrates the love of God for his sheep 
Even in his praying, the Lord Jesus said, I do not pray for the world. In John chapter 17, I pray for them which thou hast given me. Those that had been given to him by the Father in the eternal covenant, as they agreed and drew up this covenant between them, that this work would be carried out. Jesus did it for his sheep. He said, I lay down my life for my sheep. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down. I have power to take it again. And after he has performed this work for his own, after he has fully satisfied the justice of God for those that have been ordained to eternal life, after he has lived a sinless life and died as an atonement on the cross of Calvary, after he is taken from that cross and put into the tomb, dead, he is raised bodily from the dead and shortly thereafter ascends bodily to his glory from whence he had come initially to be their living priest. This is God's approbation of his work. He has come and served the sentence and after it served he set free even as a prisoner who serves his sentence is set free after he served it and is counted as if he had paid the price. His sin has been forgiven and it is forgotten. So Jesus did this in behalf of his own. The evidence of God's accepting his work is his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to his glory in that same body in which he lived and died where he now sits at the right hand of God. Honoured And so this is the wonderful gospel story of God the Father's ordaining many to eternal life and of God the Son coming to be their Redeemer, to buy them back at infinite cost, the cost of his life and death from a state of condemnation, separation, wrath and an eternal hell. Now if you'll flip over the other side of the tape, I shall continue with point number 10 on the chart. How is one brought to realize that they have been ordained to eternal life? How is one brought to realize that Jesus is indeed their Savior? Please turn. Under number 10 on the chart, I have drawn a diagram representing the Father and the Son. And then you'll notice that I've drawn another square representing the Holy Spirit. This is how one comes to know that one has been ordained to eternal life. This is how one comes to know that Jesus came and did this in one's behalf, performed this wonderful work as a substitute by the Holy Spirit. This is the meaning of the terminology which Jesus used in John chapter 3, the new birth. One is born again. This being born again simply means that the Holy Spirit enters your life. He enters the sinner. Now this is a mystery, for the Holy Spirit cannot be seen with the human eye. The Lord Jesus, he was here in the flesh. He could be seen. 
But the Holy Spirit is just as real a person as the Lord Jesus, as the Son of God, even though he cannot be seen. He is a mysterious, invisible, all-powerful person because he is the third person of the Godhead, equal in essence and in power with the Father and the Son, and involved in working out the same plan. Salvation is of the Lord, by the Lord, through the Lord, and the Lord is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what the Puritans called the glorious Trinity, the adorable Trinity. The Holy Spirit comes like the wind. This is the illustration that Jesus used. He spoke of the wind's coming. You cannot see from where the wind is coming. You cannot tell to where the wind is going. But you see its effects. A calm day is turned into a stormy day. And the trees begin to move. And all kinds of things begin to happen when the wind comes. And so it is with the Holy Spirit entering the sinner. He enters the life of this person who is dead in trespasses and sins and gives them life. And at that point, something happens. There is repentance. This is indicated on the chart under number 11. The Holy Spirit brings the sinner to God through Christ by repentance. He works repentance into the sinner. He causes the sinner to see that he is indeed alienated from God. That he is indeed in this state of spiritual death. That he is indeed on the run from his creator and benefactor. That he has, as it were, slapped him in the face. That he has ignored the one who has been so good to him over the years. That he has ignored his mercies. That he has ignored his word, his gospel, his son, his church. That he has been primarily occupied with himself. Filled with self-love. Filled with a desire to serve self while he ignores his creator. Occupied with his own pleasures, profits and pursuits, using his time, treasure and talents for these ends, having done nothing to the glory of God, realizing that he is indeed deserving only of the wrath of such an offended benefactor. He deserves only the wrath of one whose law he has frequently broken. He is a rebel. He is, as Jonathan Edwards might say, a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Deserving only hell. The Holy Spirit works this into the sinner. By nature, we will not recognize this. By nature, we will not hear this. By nature, we do not want this. This is the last thing we want to admit. But the Holy Spirit, by his almighty power, enters the life of this person that has been ordained to eternal life, enters the life of this person for whom Jesus came and lived and died, 
and causes them to see this wonder of wonders. This is the wonder of conversion, which is the next word I use, taken from Acts 3.19. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Conversion is the actual act of turning towards this creator, coming before him with humility, coming before him, recognizing one's sinfulness and one's sins with sorrow for the same, repenting of particular sins particularly, as the Puritans put it. Conversion is repentance taking feet. It's the turning back of the prodigal. It's the coming home of the son to the father. The wonder of conversion wrought, not by man, not because God has done all that he can and hopes the sinner will respond to it, but because God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit has marched into the soul, has marched into the life, what Paul called being apprehended. As he says in his own testimony in Galatians 1 that when this happened to him he, he realized that no longer was he dealing with mere flesh and blood that is with mere man. But God who had separated him from his mother's womb was the one who had called him by his grace. The same God that brought him into the world that had given him natural birth is the same God that brought him into the world of the kingdom of God by spiritual birth. This is the great necessity. Not that man might give Jesus a chance. Not that man through beautiful appeals might respond to this wonderful story which contains so much emotion. But that man by the power of the Holy Spirit might be given new birth and brought in spite of himself to repentance, conversion and as I go on to say in the chart, and as the Bible goes on to indicate, to faith. And what is faith? So many profess to have faith. Even demons have a certain faith. It may be called the faith of demons. For when they saw Jesus Christ coming, when he was here on earth, sometimes they'd cry out, you're the son of God. Is that what faith means? No, it means much more than that. It means to know the things that you've already heard as indicated on this chart. It means to know what the Bible teaches about God and man and the fall and Satan and the state of condemnation and hell. It means to know what God has done in ordaining many to eternal life. It means to know what Jesus has done in coming to be their Savior. But you can know all of this from A to Z. You can know the whole of the Bible and still not have the faith that saves the soul. Because when the Holy Spirit works this faith in, he not only gives knowledge by the truth as the scriptures say, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But he also causes one to assent to what one has come to know. That is, to believe it to be true. Not to deny it. Not to argue with it. Not to quibble about it. 
but to unreservedly accept it as the word of God. Just as if God himself were sitting with you face to face telling you these things. That's how the word is heard when the Holy Spirit gives ears to hear it and begins to give the gift of faith. But even then, you may still not have saving faith because saving faith acts. It trusts as is indicated on the chart. The third element is trust. That is the committing of oneself to this. The committing of oneself to these truths. The committing of oneself to this work of Christ for oneself. Trust is the taking of that which heals. Just as when one goes to a doctor and the doctor gives you a prescription. You go get it. You bring it home. If you simply leave it sitting there, it's not going to help you. It's not going to heal you. You must take it. If you are going to enjoy a piece of beautiful cake, you don't simply leave it sitting on the table and look at it and admire it. You take it. If you are going to go somewhere on a ship or on a plane, you get on it. You can know all about these things. You can believe all that you're told about them and believe these things to be true. But if you do not act, you're lost. You're not going to be healed. You're not going to have any of the enjoyment that's promised. You're not going anywhere, only to hell. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to a life and gives new birth, he brings about repentance, conversion, and faith. To God be the glory. God has not thrown salvation to the world at a venture. He has not thrown out his Son to all of mankind and, and said, catch him if you will. No one has the ability in himself or herself to catch him if they will man's will is enslaved by sin and Satan in the book of Romans we are told that man is the servant or slave of sin he is as a slave held captive bound unable to free himself at all by his own strength the wind of the spirit must blow into his life and enable him to understand. Enable him to love. Enable him to act. To come to Christ. The greatest lesson that Jonah learned. And it's interesting. It's the first thing he said after he had been vomited up by the great fish. It's the first testimony when he gets his feet on solid ground. Salvation is of the Lord. This is the gospel that must be preached. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, that's the salvation, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It isn't that God so loved the world 
and that Christ came into the world and poured out his life, poured out his soul unto death, and that I, by my own strength, hopefully of my own free will, will respond to these overtures. That is not the gospel of the Bible. The gospel of the Bible is a gospel of sovereign grace. That is grace that has been planned by the sovereign God. Grace that has been purchased by the Son of God. Grace that is bestowed by the Spirit of God. That's the gospel of Scripture. And I realize, of course, that this is very different from what the average hearer hears in almost every church building today. But this is the old historic gospel. The gospel that used to be preached by men like John Bunyan, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and many others. This is the gospel of scripture. Man always seeks to tamper with it. Man always seeks to get himself into it. Always seeks to put his pennyworth into it, as it were. But God will have none of it. He must have all the glory. He said, my glory will I not give to another. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He will not share with anyone, for he is Lord of all. And as Augustine said, who also enunciated this gospel very clearly in his day, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. What is salvation then? Salvation is to receive with the whole person, mind, emotions and will, the whole Savior as prophet, priest and king, as a prophet to teach you, as a priest upon whom you rely for access to God, upon whom you rely for the forgiveness of your sins, and as a king to rule over you. For when you're born again, you enter a kingdom. The Bible says you are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. This is what I've sought to indicate in the chart under number 11. Wonder of wonders. When you're born again, as I've indicated in number 12, no longer are you in a state of condemnation. You're now in a state of salvation, which I've indicated under number 10. A state of salvation. Saved from the penalty of sin. Beginning to be saved from the power of sin in what is called sanctification. The Christianizing of the Christian, as someone has called it. Progress in the Christian life. Further growth in knowledge, in love, in service. Growing in knowledge and in grace. The wonder of the Christian life. New birth is but the beginning. The Holy Spirit that brought that about continues to work in the life by the word which he has caused to live within the life, being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever, desiring the sincere milk of the word 
that ye may grow thereby. Even as the Lord Jesus prayed in his prayer in John 17, which is a wonderful prayer for his own, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so one is brought over into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of Christ. Heaven begins, as it were, in the soul. And then, when one in this state dies, the heaven that began in the soul through new birth, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, through the implantation of the word, continues on, this time unhampered, unhampered by sin, by the curse, unhampered by Satan, by the world, the men of it and the things of it. The mercies are increased. No longer are there any thorns and thistles, no longer any pain or sorrow, no longer any death. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This is salvation in its fullness. This is the continuation of justification and sanctification. Now it is glorification. Salvation is a total package, all given by God freely, without money and without price, planned by him, purchased by him, bestowed by him, maintained by him. The mercies are increased. Heaven is better than this. Praise God, what joy and bliss. The spiritual enjoyment that begins with new birth becomes even greater. One shall see God as one has never seen him before. What is called the beatific vision shall be so bright as to be blinding. It should be similar to the experience that Isaiah had in the temple, that John had in Patmos, that Peter and John had on top, Peter, James and John had in the Mount of Transfiguration. We shall see the Lord as we've never seen him before. What is heaven? Heaven is to be with the Lord. Heaven is to know the Lord. Heaven is to be doing the will of the Lord perfectly. Even as we have before us in the pattern prayer which the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples when they asked him to teach them to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how is it done? It's done joyfully, immediately, fully. Willingly, this will be heaven. And then when the resurrection day comes, the bodies of the saints that have departed in this present life shall be made anew. They shall be resurrected and closed upon with a new body, a body that will never grow weary again. A body that shall be free from physical pain. A body that shall never die. No wonder Jesus spoke of the life which comes from God as being life more abundant. The Christian has life more abundant. Life within life. Life upon life. Small wonder the scriptures say, He that hath the Son of God 
has life. Now after you have presented this wonderful gospel, which I have diagrammed on the chart before you, you ought to urge your hearer to come to Christ now. To come to his creator now. To bend the knee now. To submit now. For as one has said pertaining to another matter, and these words may be borrowed to press the point, it consists of admit, submit, commit. This is what one must do. One must be urged to admit one's sinnership and one's sins. One must be urged to submit to God's righteousness, to God's plan of salvation, to this which has been presented. One must be urged to commit oneself to him, to these truths, to the truth written and to the truth living. God himself, Christ himself. One must be urged to come to the Saviour and make no delay while he's tenderly saying come. Now is the word which I've used in number 14 on the chart. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today harden not your heart. As the Israelites of old did. After being so well treated by their creator and benefactor. Who would brought them out of Egypt's bondage. And had led them and fed them. They hardened their hearts against him. And against his appointed leadership. And they experienced his wrath because of it. Don't act as they acted. Is what it tells us in the book of Hebrews. In the chapters which I've indicated on the chart before you under number 14. So you must ask for a verdict. The free offer of the gospel as it has been called. Is to be made to all. Even though we know that not all will be born again. We must be like Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. He was told to go and say to those dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And yet they were dry bones. How could dry bones hear anything? But he was to go. And he was to speak what he'd been told to speak. And the spirit would give the dry bones life. The spirit would enter them. This is what we're called upon to do. This is actually what may be called the foolishness of preaching. That we preach this gospel to men and women who are dead in trespasses and sins. Who cannot understand it. For the Bible tells us that the natural man understandeth not the things of the spirit of God. Neither can he know them. Because they're spiritually discerned. We preach the gospel to those that cannot understand. To those whose hearts are likened in scripture to stone, stony hearts. 
to those who are enslaved by sin and Satan, who cannot exercise their wills to come to Christ. We are to preach the gospel to these dry bones, and God, according to his pleasure, moves amongst them and gives life to whomsoever he will, and makes the unwilling willing. You see, there are those who would use such verses to make them indicate that it depends upon man. It is man's will. Whosoever will may come. Certainly, whosoever will may come, but who will? Not by nature do we come. Only those who are made willing will come. Only those who are born again will come. And so the gospel is to be preached to all men everywhere. And God must make them willing. They must be born again. That is why the scriptures indicate that many are called, but few are chosen. The outward call of this gospel is to go to all and to be pressed upon all. But the inward call of the gospel comes only by the power of God. This is why I have put this presentation upon tape. This is why I have put this chart along with it. Because if ever there was a need in our time, it is a need to have the old gospel restored, to get back to the old paths, to get back to that gospel which was preached by many of our fathers and which revolutionized nations, which did not simply cause multitudes to hit what may be called the, the sawdust trail, who appear for a while and then disappear, and who are really having no effect upon the society of our times. We need to preach again the gospel that Spurgeon preached, and that Bunyan preached, and that Rutherford preached, and that Knox preached, and that Baxter preached, and that John Gill preached. And these are men that came from different quote-unquote denominational persuasions. John Gill was a, a Baptist. Spurgeon was a Baptist. Matthew Henry was a Presbyterian. John Bunyan was a Baptist. Jonathan Edwards was a Congregationalist. These are men from different persuasions, denominationally speaking, and yet they preach this gospel, the gospel of the sovereign grace of a sovereign God, which must be applied sovereignly. For the wind bloweth where it wants to. The word in the King James Version is listeth. The wind bloweth where it wants to. So does the Holy Spirit come according to his plan and according to his pleasure. So bid your listener come to Christ now. And if he's been worked upon by the Holy Spirit, if he's been born again, he will come and you will have the joy of seeing a sinner repent and turn and come to Christ and brought into the kingdom of God and you'll be able to praise God for the manifestation of his glorious grace because you have seen someone that has been ordained to eternal life 
manifest that they have been thus ordained. You've seen someone for whom Christ came and was born and lived and died manifest that they have been purchased by his precious blood. What a wonder. There is joy in heaven, it tells us, over one sinner that comes to repentance and will be joy in your soul. So I recommend this chart to you. I recommend you take a piece of blank paper that you seek to memorize it, be able to draw it on the blank paper with the accompanying verses and any others that may come to your mind. Don't learn to parrot it off. Use it freely. Use it as a guide. This is what it's designed for, is to be a help to you to give the gospel to another. That's why I have entitled it thus on the title. So I trust that you will do this. I trust that this will cause this glorious gospel of God's grace to go out into all the world, to every creature, even as the Lord Jesus commands his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And this chart is designed to present those all things, all the counsel of God, the gospel in its fullness, the basic elements that must be included in it, if it is to be presented according to the spirit and truth.